Have you ever gotten advice from somebody uh, that you didn't ask for, and you don't know them very well, but yet they offered it anyway? Ever happened to you? I can think of two times in my life, two like seasons, when that happened a lot. The first was when uh, my wife Ashley and I got engaged, and you know we're looking forward to the wedding and all these people, distant uh, relatives and you know old friends. People start coming and coming out of the woodwork with the advice, which. You know, I think they meant well, but it basically went something like this. Wow, you're getting married. That's so exciting. You know the first year is the worst, right? I mean, has anybody told you? No one's going to tell you that, but it's true. And um, not especially encouraging (laughs) when you're looking forward to getting married and trying to get the wedding planned and all that. And uh, as I said, many of these people I didn't even know that well, but yet they're saying this to me. This phenomenon happened again when Ashley was pregnant with our first child, Luke, our son. And so again, like, yay, we're excited to be parents. We're looking forward to his arrival, making plans. Again, some well-intentioned but not so encouraging advice began to flow. That's so exciting. You're going to have a baby. You realize you're never going to sleep again, right? Like that's over. Your life is now going to be a post-apocalyptic hellscape of sleep deprivation and just have fun with it. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I just thought, wow. Okay. So again, I think these people meant well. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. Even if they're right on a level, even if it's true there are unique challenges in the early stages of a marriage or parenting, I mean, good advice given for the wrong reasons or by someone you don't know that well or don't trust, it's harder to accept, isn't it? This idea is really important when we think about our faith, the way we talk to people about God, sharing our lives of faith, relating to people. Because, look, we can speak the truth. We can say true things about God. We can even quote scripture. But if our heart is not in the right place or we speak with a judgmental tone or we haven't made a relational investment in the person we're speaking to or at least let them know that we care about them, then that truth that we might speak is not going to be heard in the way that we would hope. Because here's the thing, God has revealed the truth about himself uh, in the scriptures, in the life of Christ, but he entrusts his message to us. I mean, we carry his message. Um, We quote this verse a lot around here in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So God entrusts his message to us, and he gives us opportunities to speak about our faith to others. And, and if we are entrusted with that, or if we are his ambassadors, this means our hearts matter, the words we choose matter, the way we speak matters. If I had to sum it up in one word of what I think we're supposed to be like when we talk about our faith, when we interact with people and speak about God, the one word I would pick is genuine. We have to be genuine. And I think there's like two ways that we have to be genuine. The first is we do have to speak the genuine truth about God. We have to speak accurately about who Jesus is, speak the truth, yes. But that has to occur in the context of a genuine relationship too. And and what I mean by that is that you really care about the person you're speaking to. You really uh, are interested in them. It doesn't mean you have to be every person's best friend. But the people we speak to about God should at least know we genuinely care about them. We want to see them experience life in Christ. And so if we want to be these Christ-like ambassadors that we are called to be, I think genuine is what we're going for. And so uh, the question that we're going to kind of be 
orbiting around today as we go through is this. How can we be genuine when we talk about God, when we share our faith, when we speak about what we believe is true? How can we be genuine? What does that look like? Um, Because you can't fake being genuine. So how can you really be genuine? We're going to get into the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians today, and I think it's going to help us understand exactly what this looks like. Uh, So if you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the layout of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians is right here. It's kind of halfway through the New Testament, give or take, right after the book of Colossians. Um, If you don't own a Bible, those Bibles on the tables, feel free to take one of those. You can take that home. That would be our gift to you. Um, We encourage people to highlight, take notes. There's note cards and pens and stuff in those baskets. Um, We just want to dive into Scripture together and and really absorb what God has to say. If you are using one of the Bibles on the table, you can find uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 on page 807. Um, So last week, uh, we started this series um, on 1 Thessalonians, and we talked a little bit about the background, kind of why this letter was written, what it's about. And I just wanted to say a couple things about that before we continue. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter that was written in the first century. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a large city called Thessalonica. I have a map here. This red line is this multi-year journey that the Apostle Paul went on sharing Christ with parts of the Mediterranean world that had never heard of Jesus. So this is modern Turkey, and there's Greece over there. Thessalonica is up there in the northern part of Greece. It was a a big city, probably 100,000 people, um, very wealthy. It was on trade routes, and um, there were no Christians there when Paul shows up. And so he comes to that town. He brings the message of Jesus. People respond. So there's a small church in this city for the very first time. And then Paul gets run out of town because there's a group of people who do not want him there. They do not like this message. So he's forced to leave. He didn't want to leave. And so there's these, like, baby Christians in Thessalonica with, like, no leader, and they're, they're just there. And so Paul's concerned about them. He wants to fill in the teaching a little bit. He wants to encourage them. And so these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are Paul's letters back to that church after he left to encourage them uh, in their new faith in Christ and to teach them about what this life looks like. Um, so today in chapter 2, what we're going to look at, Paul uh, describes for them uh, what he was like when he was with them. You know, his motives, what, what he kind of reminds them. Remember what I was like when I was with you? And he walks through his heart for these people. Um, so let's jump into it now, but I want to just pray really quickly first. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are going to uh, dive into your word now, and we just make ourselves available to you. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to block out the thoughts and, and distractions and things on our minds that would prevent us from hearing the fullness of what you want to teach us? We are available to you. Speak to us now. Amen. First Thessalonians 2, verse 1, Paul wrote this. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, 
We were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. So let's stop there for a second. Uh, What Paul's doing, he's kind of reminding them of his conduct when he was there. He's reassuring them, I really do care about you. He's sincere. He's in it for the right reasons. He's not trying to trick them or, you know, use them or flatter them or seek their praise. He genuinely wants them to find and enjoy life in Christ. That is what he's in it for. And in verse 4, he says, I wasn't in it to please people. I was trying to please God. And if you're taking notes, I would highlight this remarkable phrase. Uh, God who tests our hearts. That's who Paul is interested in pleasing. God who tests our hearts. Now, uh, Paul was writing in the first century in Greek. It's the language of the time. And so when he originally wrote this, it wasn't in English. It was in Greek. The word he used when he originally wrote it for tests, God tests our hearts, is this Greek word dokimazo. Some of y'all are like, did he just say Pokemon? Dokimazo. Um, which means to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing, often through actual use. So here's what that word was used for. It's it's an interesting word. Uh, In the ancient world, that word was used for authenticating coins or testing the purity of metals. So when it says God tests our hearts, it doesn't mean God testing like I'm tempting you. This is a test. No, he's testing the quality of our hearts, the purity, the authenticity. God knows our hearts, and he knows our reasons and our motives for things. And so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you know, God knows our hearts and knows if we're genuine in our beliefs and our motives. And he's saying, in my relationship with you, I am genuine. God knows it. He's tested my heart. I care about you. I have sincere concern for you. And he drives the point home with this pair of metaphors. He says uh, in verse 7 that when he was with them, he and his co-workers were like young children. I would highlight that. Uh, that's, a, that's a metaphor of innocence. You know, I was just like a child. I, you know, I just wanted you to encounter Christ. It's, in, it's an innocent motive. And then he just immediately flips the metaphor and couches himself as the parent. And he says, um, uh, as a nursing mother uh, takes care of uh, her children, cares for her children, so we cared for you. So I would highlight that, nursing mother. So, he, But look, Paul's describing his heart for them. His posture toward the Thessalonian Christians, it's genuine. God has tested his heart. It's genuine. He, he is sincere in his care for them. And then in the next, really, half of a verse, Paul gives the proof of why they can believe this is true, that he really cares for them. And this, this verse is so key for us. So verse 8, the second half of verse 8, Paul says, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And that's, that's really the heart of the matter. How do the Thessalonian Christians, these new Christians, know that Paul really cares about them and is in it for the right reasons, that he really loves them? He shared not only the gospel, but his life too. I would highlight that actually. Not only the gospel, but our lives as well. That's what they shared with the Thessalonians when they were there. He lived with them. He spent time with them. He took an interest in their life. He opened up about his own life. He wasn't there to just push an agenda. It wasn't about self-interest. He didn't relate to them as some distant superior who's coming to just school these pagans and teach them the truth. No, he was invested. He was a friend on the same journey as them. That's what he means. I shared the gospel and my life with you. 
And by the way, he didn't share his life begrudgingly, reluctantly, half-heartedly. No, it says he was delighted to share his life. Circle that word there. We were delighted to share with you the gospel and our lives, those two together. And why would Paul do that? Why would he think, when I share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I need to share my life too? Why would that be important? Where did he get that idea? From Jesus. What, what did God do in the life of Christ? Did Jesus, you know, sort of, you know, rocket across the sky and just spell his message out in the clouds and say, see ya, believe that? No, he came down into life, into the mess, and lived it among us, walked among us. Jesus shared the gospel and his life with us and gave his life for us. So the gospel has always been paired with the life of the one sharing it. Jesus did that. Paul did that. And that's the model for us. When we share Christ with others, when we speak about our faith, have conversations about God, we have to view ourselves not as just sharing information, not just sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which is powerful and we have to share, yes, but we must share our lives too. We open our hearts to people. We speak truth in the context of relationships. We let people know that we really care. Let people know that God loves them and we are for them. This is why a few weeks ago, by the way, when we talked about sharing our faith, how we go and and tell people about Jesus, we encourage you to write your story. Tell your story of faith as you tell the gospel because you know what that's doing? You have your life and the gospel together. You're sharing your life and the gospel. Let's keep reading. Paul's going to reinforce a couple of things in these last few verses. He says, verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. There's the parenting metaphor again. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. I want to just focus on that last part for a second. So Paul shares the gospel with the Thessalonians. He shares his life. But then he's, he's giving thanks here for the fact, and I would highlight this if you're taking notes, that they accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is God's word. It is not some human message. It is not a motivational speech. It is not good advice. It is not a life plan. The gospel is the good news. It is an announcement of what Jesus already accomplished on the cross. It is the life-giving, joyful message of Jesus's rescue mission for you and for me. And Paul says the gospel, that truth is at work in any who believe. That gospel changed Paul, it changed the Thessalonians, it changes us when we give our lives to Christ and trust him as our Savior and as Lord of our lives. So I want to just come back to that question now that we started out with uh, at the beginning, the kind of focus of the, how can we be genuine when we talk about God? I think Paul gave us a very clear and concise answer. 
How can we be genuine when we talk about God? We share the gospel and our lives. We share the gospel and our lives. We share the gospel, God's word, which is powerful. It works, as Paul was just saying. So we, we talk about Jesus. We are explicit in the way we speak about it. Also, we share our lives. We allow people into our worlds. We invite conversations. We are open. We are vulnerable. We are honest about our struggles, about our journey, how God has given us hope. And we listen well. That's a lost art, isn't it? We listen. We don't shy away from the messiness of life, the struggles of life. We speak honestly about them. We show each other grace, treating each other better than we deserve as God has treated us. We share the gospel and our lives. And that's really my prayer for our church, for real hope, that we would be a people where both are true. We speak the truth of scripture, the gospel of Jesus, and we share our lives. We have avenues of connecting relationally and knowing each other. We serve on teams together. We have a cup of coffee together before the service or after. You know, we, we join discipleship groups or we serve together in this community or, you know, on trips to places like Honduras. We, we want to share the gospel and our lives with each other and also with those who are not a part of our church family. This is what Paul did with the Thessalonians. And by the way, sharing the gospel and our lives, if we miss either of those, we're kind of in trouble. If we share our lives, for example, but we're not coming back to the spring of life, the gospel, we're not going to experience the fullness of our call. We will have friends, and friends are a good thing, but we'll lose sight of our identity and mission, our purpose. If we share the gospel, on the other hand, but we don't share our lives, if our hearts are cold or closed to people who aren't like us or who don't believe what we do, um, we're not going to be the Christ-like ambassadors that we're called to be. We share the gospel and our lives. But there are some stumbling blocks to this. It's easy, I think, at least this has been true of me, uh, it's easy, I think, uh, sometimes to assume that our main responsibility, those of us who are believers in Christ, our main responsibility is to sort of speak the truth just speak the truth and kind of stand up for it, and that's where my responsibility kind of ends. And it is very important to be willing to do that. We, we've been speaking about that recently. It's important to be willing to do that and actually to do that, to tell people about Christ, to speak the truth. But if we don't pair that with a relational investment or at least letting the person listening know that we genuinely care for them, then we're going to cloud the truth that we speak. We can actually stand in the way of the truth that we speak. We can get in the way. We can make it hard for people to hear the message in the way that we act because they're not sure we genuinely care. There's this quote. I've shared it before. I keep coming back to it. I heard it at a conference years ago. I just feel like it's the quote just, just keeps giving because it's just so true. It, it's by uh, Dr. Tim Elmore. He um, is an expert in particularly the next generation and um, how culture is changing, and, and he's a, he speaks at Christian conferences, and he's an expert on leadership. And he has this phrase that it's just been echoing in my head for the last eight years since I heard it. Tim Elmore says, we have to build bridges of relationship that can withstand the weight of truth. We have to build bridges of relationship that can withstand the weight of truth. The gospel in our lives, I mean, that's what that is. We share the gospel, but there's a, a re relational foundation there. 
we speak into people's lives by opening our lives and we speak the truth in that context. This is what Paul did in Thessalonica. This is what Jesus did. They shared the gospel and their life. I want to read one other passage of scripture. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up here. Um, I think Paul was speaking about the same idea, sharing the gospel and our lives in another letter, 1 Corinthians, but from another angle. And I just think it really um, just kind of drives all this home, at least it, it does for me. In 1 Corinthians 13, um, well, first of all, the church at Corinth was very fractured. They were fighting with each other constantly. Many of them didn't even like Paul. <laughs> so he's writing them a letter to try to help them gain some unity. And he's talking about how they can use their gifts in the church and how to not quarrel over that. And, and, and this passage starts out with a little bit of a warning. And then he goes into probably the most famous thing Paul ever wrote. So he starts out, he says, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So he's been talking about spiritual gifts. He's saying, you can speak the truth in literally the language of heaven, heavenly, like you're an angel. But if you don't love the people that you're talking to, you are noise. You're a clanging cymbal. You're a gong. You're not music. You're noise. He goes on, too. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he goes from here to describe how love should be expressed within the Christian community and emanate from the Christian community. And look what he says, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now that last little phrase, love never fails, is not a, a Hallmark card sentimental statement. Uh, he was actually speaking literally. Um, love never fails because God is love and God is eternal. Love lasts forever. In another place in Paul's letters, he talks about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. And the reason he says love is greater than faith and hope is that one day in eternity, we won't have to have faith in God because we will be with him. One day in eternity, we won't have to have hope because we are living in the hope that we hope for. But love, we experience now and we will experience forever. Love lasts forever. Love never fails. And so when you show love towards someone in the name of Christ, you are engaging in activity with eternal significance. That's what Paul was up to in Thessalonica. He shared the gospel and he shared his life as Jesus did. And he loved, Paul loved these Thessalonian brothers and sisters in Christ. He loved them. He was genuine. And so th for those of us who are Christians, 
We have to think this way. As we share the truth about Jesus, as we share the gospel, we have to try to do this in the context of relationships with genuine concern, genuine care, love for others. And by the way, love in the Christian sense in the New Testament, it always has an active sense to it. It's not just a, a warm feeling towards someone. Love is not passively tolerating someone else. It's not just not hating someone. Love in the New Testament, agape, the word, the Greek word, and others, always has an active, almost pursuing quality to it. And so that's our call, is to love people that way as we share the gospel, as we share our lives. If you're here today and um, you haven't placed your faith in Christ or you're new to church, I want you to know that Real Hope is a place that you can belong. We will share Jesus with you. We will share the gospel. We will tell you that you are loved by God, that you are worth dying for, that all you have to do to be forgiven of your sins and saved is place your trust in Christ, ask him to forgive you and rescue you, and he will. We're also going to share our lives with you, walk with you through this journey of following Christ. It won't be perfect. It won't always be easy, but you can trust God that he loves you, he's with you, the good shepherd, and you can trust us too. We're going to walk with you through this. So how can we be genuine? We share the gospel and we share our lives. God tests our hearts. And if our hearts are aligned to those two things, they're genuine. The gospel and our lives.